let's read from John, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, and then we'll pray. Verse 1 of Joshua 18 says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for the time we had in worship. And we know, God, that you are always that close to us. You, your spirit resides within the life of the believer. And yet when we come together and we worship you together, there's something special there. As we commune with you and commune with each other, the bride of Christ being together, we thank you for that rich time. And God, as we come to focus on your word, we pray that you would lead us, God. We pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, that we would know your word, that we would know the truth of the Spirit reigning and ruling in our hearts. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, I want you to know that uh, how many of you are reading through the Bible this year? You're just reading through the Bible? Just curious. Okay. Well, you know, every time when you try to read through the whole Bible in a year, especially if you go chronologically, which is what I like to do because it helps me to link everything together in my, my wee brain, um, it's, it's great. But you get to a certain part of Scripture and it seems tedious. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It seems dull. When you're reading through numbers and you're like, especially if you don't even like to math, yeah. you know, you're like, these numbers? I know some of these numbers, you know. Um, or Leviticus, right? Or when it's talking about specific laws from the Torah and it's going on and on, and you're like, what? Why? Right? And, and it, it feels tedious. And I want you to know that you're not alone, that everybody experiences that sometimes in reading certain portions of Scripture. And yet one of the things we have to remember is that whether you're reading a genealogy or the cities of allotments, or the laws of the Torah, or measurements of the tabernacle, or details of the furniture built for the tabernacle, that all of it has meaning. It all has meaning, and God put it there for a reason. We may not always understand the deeper reason why it's there, and because it doesn't apply to our everyday life, or we think it doesn't apply, our mind, the way we think in our modern Western society, is discarded. We don't need it. Set it aside. It doesn't directly apply to me. But I want you to know that that is not the way to approach God's word, which we have to remember, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that all scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, even though we don't always understand it or it might seem tedious to us, the truth is, it's there for a reason. And I was thinking about the passages that have seemed dull to me over my life. They end up yielding encouraging truths to strengthen my faith throughout my life. God layers his word with intricate nuances that weave throughout the backdrops of Scripture. And they weave throughout our days until the moment arrives for us to notice and absorb something significant. 
So that means even in the thing that seems the most tedious, as we read it and take it in and try to understand it, there will come a day when we're reading that a light will come on where we realize we needed that passage of Scripture. Or it had some truth for us. It was more than just a history of Israel. There was something there for us. And so I want to encourage you not to give up on those passages. You know, sometimes when we're reading the names of the genealogies, I want you to remember that the Bible was an oral instrument before it was written. Meaning that the Israelites would tell these stories to their children and their children's children. And those names were significant to the tribes. Those names were the names of those cities were significant to the people that have lived that history, whose grandmas and grandpas gave their lives, or their great grandpa. They hear that name, that family name, and they realize, "I have a heritage. I have a heritage in this faith." And so it was significant then, and it's even significant for us now. And so what I do sometimes when I'm reading through genealogies is I will look at that name, and I will hunt for that name in other areas of Scripture. And I will try to tie it together, and in that I will find its significance. Or the name of the city, or the name of the, the small nation, or whatever, and I will look for it in other places in history. I will look at the meaning of the word to figure out, man, there is significance in this name. Look at this name. Like the name Gilgal, which we're going to look at tonight, has a meaning. It means rolling because it was the place where God rolled away the reproach from Israel, the reproach of Egypt off of them. So it was called Gilgal. So when we look at the name Gilgal, it means nothing to us, but if we look deeper, it does. My encouragement to you is as you read scripture, don't discard it. Maybe store it away, but keep looking at it and looking for the significance that God might bring to your life. All right. A little bit of, of background to this passage before we start. The people moved from Gilgal, which means rolling, to Shiloh, which means a place of rest. So Gilgal, they were there. They came across the, the, into the promised land. And when they came across the Jordan, they ended up settling in Gilgal for seven years. And then they moved to Shiloh. And this is the point where they moved to Shiloh. For over 369 years, God's tabernacle rested in Shiloh. That's significant. The name of it is the place of rest or the place of peace. And I want to tell you a little bit about what the children of Israel would do with the tabernacle. They would take it and they would put up this tent, which was a central place of worship. And it contained a place for the presence of God to dwell. The Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And they would set up this tabernacle, this tent, and it was in the central part of their camp. So in Gilgal, it was in the central part of their camp, and everybody would look to that tabernacle. And when it was moved to Shiloh, Shiloh was in the middle of the promised land. So now all of the promised land was looking to the center, and that center was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was more than just tent or place of meeting, which is what it means, a place of meeting. But it was more than that because it was a place of meeting God. Now, God wasn't contained to the tabernacle. He wasn't locked in there in the Holy of Holies or in the Ark of the Covenant, of course. It was representative of his presence, and he would come there especially to meet with the high priest. He would come there especially for people to come, and they could come, and they could ask for forgiveness of sin and sacrifice and, 
And it was a central place for people to focus. And so this place of rest, Shiloh, is where the children of Israel moved to in this passage. Now, if you think that this tent was just a small thing, I want you to know that this tent was huge. And God was very specific in the way he told them to make the tabernacle. You guys remember those passages, right? You might consider this some of the tedious things where it talks about the measurements of the walls and how tall the pillars were and how far it was supposed to be between each pillar and how a golden rod would connect the pillars and how the hooks would hook into the curtain that would hang on the pillars. And, and you're reading all of that and one thing you can know is that God is specific in the details. He cares about the details. And not only that, he cared about who would come in and he cared about how they would worship God because there is a specific way to approach God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There's a specific way that they gained access to God. In the New Testament and the New Covenant, we gain access to God through Jesus. As believers in Jesus, his righteousness is accounted to us and we can come boldly into the throne room of grace in prayer, in repentance, in praise. But in the Old Testament, this holy God and the people were separated and the only way to come in was through a sacrificial system and it had to be done specifically. Anyway, I got off, I got off base. I was talking about the tabernacle. The tabernacle, if it was valued in today's economy, would be worth over $50 million. I'm talking about a tent with its furnishings, but many parts of it covered in gold and silver, and bronze, the garments of the priests with jewels. It was very specific, and it was very valuable. And how did they pay for that tabernacle? The people brought their free will offerings of gold, silver, bronze. They gave their earrings. They gave all kinds of things to see the tabernacle of God created. It was an act of ultimate worship and giving to even create this tabernacle. And I want you to know that now we are the temple of God. And he rests within us. It's not this building. God comes in a special way through his Holy Spirit when we worship and hear the word and all that stuff. But you are the temple. And this place is a place where we come together. And so it's special, but it's not like the tabernacle was. You are that place. You are that special place. So we come before God now calling him our friend, which is biblically true. But perhaps we lack in our understanding just how holy and beautiful and sacred our God is. Perhaps we have forgotten and come with a flippancy and come with a sense of it just don't matter. That's poor English, but it just don't matter. I just come and I just give him whatever I can give him. And I want you to know that God is so gracious, he receives what you have. But the truth is, this is a holy God. And we're coming to him and we have an opportunity to bring loving, intimate, passionate, real worship to him as we meet together. Our worship of God is no longer defined by tapestries and gold icons or covered objects. It's defined by our intimacy, devotion, and our set-apartness for him. Are you set apart for God? 
Have you been set apart to God from the world and you're like, yes, I'm all in? Because that's what God wants from us as we approach him in worship. So these children of Israel enter the promised land. They've had mighty conquests. God displays his greatness and his power. Five tribes received their allotments in the last five chapters. We read that with Pastor Derek last week. Seven tribes still have not taken their provision. And Joshua confronts them with this question. How long will you wait? How long will you wait? Let's read it. We're going to read just the first few verses. Starting in verse 1 of 18. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven division. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. All right. So it's interesting here because the first thing we see is that the land had been subdued. That's what it says in verse 1. And Joshua says, what are you waiting for? Because the land has been subdued. What does the word subdued mean? It means the land has been conquered. It's, it's ready to go. It's yours. You know, not that there might not be more things to do, but basically, God has shown you he's with you. Step out into what he's given you. What's going on? What are you waiting for? How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? Now, isn't that interesting? You know, because I, I think, man, why would they wait? If they knew that God had given them a section, why would they wait? What's going on? You know, maybe it was because they were fearful. It could be. Maybe they thought, well, you know, things are going so well and I just don't want to rock the boat. Maybe they were fearful. I don't know what's coming around the bend, so I'm just going to hold off. That could be. Maybe they liked it where they were. You know, they'd been traveling all that time. These were the children of those who went into the wilderness. Remember, they all died off and their children now are adults going into Gilgal and Shiloh. And maybe they were just like, 
man, we've been through a lot. Our families have been through a lot. Let me just chill here. I'm happy just to share a tent with Joe and Barney and their families. I'm okay. Maybe. Maybe they were apathetic. They just didn't care. They were just like, eh, I have no internal motivation for anything. I can barely get up and put my shoes on in the morning. Maybe that was them. Maybe they were thinking, I'm going to go get it someday. I mean, down the road, eventually, I am going to go and get what God has promised me. But right now, this is a little break. Maybe they just like the status quo. They like things like they were. Maybe they were clueless and didn't get it. Maybe they never knew the value of home. They never knew. Think about that. These people were raised in the wilderness. They were in Gilgal for seven years. They probably didn't even want to leave Gilgal, to be honest with you. They had a chance to settle. To settle someplace. And then Joshua was like, we're going to Shiloh. Well, okay, fine. We go to Shiloh. Now you want us to go off into some section of land that supposedly we've been given, but we haven't even seen it yet. We want to stay here. We like it the way it is. Maybe they're okay with the temporary and they just don't like the permanent. Could it be that they were skeptical? What were they missing out on? They were missing out on the permanent over the temporary. They were missing out on putting roots down and fruit up. They were missing out on the blessing of obedience. They were missing out on the fun of the next adventure. They were missing out on rejoicing in what God had given them. My question for you is, are we doing the same thing with the things of God? We know God has promised us certain things and, you know, that's all good. God has promised us certain things. He's promised us a way of life. He's promised us blessings in this life and the, and the next life, right? Eternal life. He's, he's promised us all kinds of things, and that's good in everything, but we just have become fearful ourselves of moving out of where we are, or we've become apathetic, or we've become to like the status quo. We don't really want to rock the boat. We don't want to leave a good thing, even if it's for a better thing, out of fear. What has God called you to? What has he called you to do? How has he called you to serve him? How has he called you to lead your family? How has he called you to make a difference in the way you communicate with people on a day-by-day -day basis? What has he called you to do? What blessings has he apportioned for you? Because you see these tribes... Seven tribes had been told, the land is subdued, go get it. They didn't go get it. And Joshua said, what are you waiting for? How long will you wait? When I think of the blessings of God, I always think of the book of Ephesians, <clears throat> the blessings in Christ that he goes into. By the way, I want to tell you that you have homework 
for these passages. The rest of chapter 18 and chapter 19 is all about the tribes and how the land was apportioned. Your job is to read it and to read it out loud. Try to pronounce the names. See if any of the names sound familiar that you've read in other passages. Maybe do a quick word search. Maybe get on Blue Letter Bible and go a little deeper in those passages. But I want to tell you, it's all about the seven tribes and how the land was apportioned, who went and what cities they saw and how they went back to Joshua with the report. And then Joshua did what he said he was going to do. He cast lots, which was a supernatural way of determining the will of God in those days. They didn't have the spirit of God living in each believer. They would cast lots, believing that God would supernaturally show them. He did that for the seven tribes, and he assigned their lands to them. And at the end of chapter 19, it says that they in turn gave Joshua a city for his inheritance. They, the leaders got together and said, we want to give you a land. And he asked for a city, and they gave it to him, which was really meaningful and a sweet thing to do for the, of them to do for their leader. But we, we're going to concentrate <clears throat> tonight on the blessings that we have in Christ and stepping into them. And the first thing I want to do is just show you a survey, and they're going to put it on the screen for you, <clears throat> of just 30 different things that I found in the chapter, in the cha six short chapters of Ephesians that show blessings from God through Christ. And I'm just going to read them really quickly. I put the passages here so you can look them up in your private study time. We are chosen by God, adopted by God, accepted before God, forgiven of sins. We can know God's will, eternal inheritance, salvation, sealed by the Spirit, wisdom, knowledge of God, Alive with Jesus, dead to sin, God's mercy, God's love, divine power toward believers, spiritual life, believers sit together in heavenly places, eternal kindness, know God's good plan, our works prepared by God, Jesus is our peace, believers united, Peace with believers, citizens of heaven, members of God, God's household, built on apostles and prophets' foundation, access to God through Jesus, gifts given for the body. Jesus loves, Jesus loves us and sacrificed himself for us and the armor of God. These are just some of the blessings that are listed in the book of Ephesians. And I'm not saying that Ephesians is the only place that lists the blessings that we, that we have in Christ, right? But these are just some of the spiritual blessings that God gives to us through our relationship with Christ. My question for us is how do we receive these blessings or take the land that God has provided? How do we possess the land God is saying, this is your land, how long until you possess it? Some of these things we get as believers, they're just automatically assigned to us. But I believe that there are other things that we have to, by faith, move into. 
we have to move into it and we have to recognize it and we have to die to our own flesh. We have to choose to choose it and we walk forward in the blessings that God has. And I want to tell you that there have been a lot of years that I spent living my Christian life uh, not even wanting to receive all the blessings that God gives. I mean, I knew they were there. I made an intellectual assent to them, and I thought I would get them someday in heaven was my thought. But what God has shown me over these last years is that I need to actively move and pursue God in these things. A partnering with him, that means that I die to myself. I make a decision to choose life and choose the spirit of God and to believe these things and to pray these things and to speak them in my family and in my life. And these blessings are readily accessible to everyone who is in Christ, but there is one thing. They're found in one location that you have to be, and that is in Christ. You have to be in Christ. These blessings are not available to those who do not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. So that's the first thing. They're readily accessible to everyone in Christ Jesus, and the way to be in Christ is to repent and to turn away from our sins, confessing to God that we're sinners. And we, when we believe that Christ died to take our punishment... And he now lives to give us new life. He grants us forgiveness of sins and the blessings that accompany salvation. This means that when we're born again, we become a new creation and our life is hid in him. I want you to think about the tribes in Joshua 18. They had to believe that they had an inheritance. They had to believe it before they could ever step foot out to obtain it. So we have to believe in Jesus and believe in these blessings in order for them to really be part of our lives. They had to step out in faith and they, they were there. They were walking. They, they observed. They had to measure the land. They had to bring their observations back to Joshua. They had to see it in a very real sense. We first believe that we've inherited these spiritual blessings and then we step out and we measure or consider what they are in the light of the world around us. How do we navigate living in these spiritual blessings and living in this fallen world? How do we do that? That's what we're measuring. That's what we're understanding. That's what we're bringing back to Christ and asking him, God, show me how to receive these blessings. What I've found is as I pray and commune with God, if I study his word, my desires begin to be replaced and eclipsed by a desire to walk in the spirit. When I don't read the word and spend time communing with Christ, my desires come to the forefront. And then when I meet up with a situation that day, sometimes my flesh is screaming and my spirit seems to be eclipsed by my flesh because I haven't been in the word. I haven't been praying and communing and spending time with him. But through that time with him, the spirit, 
the Spirit is louder. I can hear the Spirit and I operate in the Spirit and I live by Him. But those are choices that we make. I don't want to neglect my time with the Lord. Not because there's some weird religious obligation or some checklist that if I don't do it, I'm a bad Christian. That has nothing to do with it. It's not legalism. It's a relationship. I want to spend time with him. I want to hear his voice. I want the Spirit of God to be louder than every other voice in my life, louder than even my precious wife's voice. I want to have that with him. So awakening happens in the hearts of individuals. The songs we sang tonight could not have been more perfectly aligned with this message. We didn't talk about it. But the Spirit of God put it together. That we would awake. Awake to the things of God. You have been praying, if you're a Christian, you have been praying for revival or an awakening in this land probably your whole Christian life. You've been praying for it because pastors have been telling you to. Because churches have been saying it. And if at some point in there, you really wanted it too. But it's probably started out from some pastor saying it. And so it became the thing to pray about. But I want to tell you, it's more than just an empty prayer or a request. It's a necessity that people would come to know Jesus. The Spirit of God would reign and rule in the lives of people. It's something that if you're a believer, you know and you want that. But I want to tell you something. That doesn't start out there. It doesn't start in Asbury and then we catch it like a disease. Every great awakening starts with an individual who just says, yes, God, me, use me. God, I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. I want you to talk through me. I choose your ways over my ways. I want to spend time with you. God, awake me. Let me come to life. It starts with a person. It can start with you tonight. And then that one person calls another person. Encourages them. Exhorts them. Prays for them. And it begins to grow. And those two or three people come to a meeting like this. And they're on fire and they cry out to Jesus. The Spirit of God moves in a powerful way. Awakening happens. What happened in Asbury is so amazing, and we all want it to happen here. But I wonder how many times it could have happened. Already, where the Spirit of God says, I choose you. I choose you. Speak for me. Live for me. Be wholehearted for me cannonball into everything I have for you. Let everything else pale in comparison to me. Maybe God wants to do that right now, tonight. I believe it. I believe that God can do it right now. I believe that in this room is everything that is necessary. A willing heart, 
and a mighty God. Will you be the one to respond to the Spirit of God? Will you challenge, encourage, and reach out to others? I just want to read very quickly a passage from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. That's in the New Testament. Ephesians 3. We're just going to read verses 1 through 13. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. The inheritance of Christ has been provided for us through our faith in him. God provided it through Jesus that we could live that kind of life, not just in eternal glory someday, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> not just in eternity. We always think of eternity as the day we go to heaven, but eternity starts now for the life of the believer. The kingdom of God is within us. So, excuse me, can you mute my mic for a second? Allergies. So, it's not just what we do or where we're going to go that we get these blessings. Some of them will become fully consummated in us in glory. But we're to walk in them now. If you see yourself as forgiven, what does that mean for your gratitude? And what does that mean for the choices you make? By his loving kindness, he calls us to repentance. So when we fall, we fall on Jesus. When we make a mistake and we're completely restored, reconciled and still walking with him in a beautiful relationship with him. If you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, what does that mean? That means it's more than it is just about on this short earth. This dirt ball that is spinning in the sky is amazing, but this is a short period of time for us. We have all of eternity stretching before us. How does that change 
our perspective. The fact that you were chosen by God means that he saw you in your mother's womb and you were beautifully created by him for a purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in salvation, you, because of salvation with Jesus, you have an eternal inheritance and that all the wrath of God for your sin has been removed from you and placed on the cross of Christ, on Jesus' shoulders? Do you believe that? Do you believe God's mercy has been poured out on you and you're not going to get what you deserve? Hell and death, you're not going to get that. Instead, it was exchanged for life and love and godliness and acceptance. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's grace, all the good things that he has for you, that he has poured them out in your life, not only on the cross, but right now, today? Do you believe that God's power is extended to you in all of your doings on this earth, that you can have the power of God working in your life? There are so many things here that if we understood and we sought to grasp that in our spiritual formation, if we wanted to grow and say, God, give me an understanding of that. Let me obtain my inheritance. I want to possess the land. Joshua asked them, how long will you wait? And I'm asking you today, how long will you wait to seek to obtain the beautiful blessings and richness of Christ that has been provided for you on the cross. Are you willing to take that step where you say, God, I want to be that person. I want to give everything to you. I want to be completely on fire for you, immersed in you, saturated with your Holy Spirit. I want you to have control of my life. I give up all my ideas and plans and I embrace what you have, God, because they're better. Will you be that person tonight who declares that to a loving God? Because I tell you right now, you can trust him. Mm -hmm.